The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. Last week we returned to our study of the Old Testament book of Judges. And today we come to the third and final section of that book. We will begin looking at the last five chapters of that book. Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. It is a book that covers about two to four hundred years of Israel's history after they were led into the land of promise before God raised up for them the first king. The main body of the book describes cycles that the nation went through. Uh, cycles where they would rebel against God and then God would bring retribution against them by raising up a foreign empire to come against them. And then they would repent of their sin and then God would restore them. And so from the seventh verse of the third chapter after the introduction down through the end of the 16th chapter, that's what we have are these cycles that go through 13 different named judges. The last one being Samson, who we looked at last week. But one of the things that you note as you look at the body of the book and you look at those cycles is that with each cycle there is this general progression downward so that the rebellion becomes more intense and longer. The repentance becomes more superficial. The restoration doesn't last as long either. And it just seems like the people are increasingly settling into a mindset of forgetting God. What we find in these last five chapters, beginning in chapter 17, is the conclusion of the book. And it's divided into two sections. So you've got chapter 17 and 18 being the first section, and then chapters 19 through 21 being the second section. And what they give to us is a, a slice, a, a, a portrait of what life was like during the time of Judges. So we're no longer looking at chronological stories, but rather we're just backing up, and it's like the author wants to give us a snapshot of just typical ways that the Israelites were living during this two to four hundred year period. And what we see in this snapshot, these two snapshots and the two parts of the conclusion, is not a very pretty picture. We see people who have the name of God upon their lips, and yet they go about living the way they want to. It's not that they have blatantly rejected God. Rather, they've just downplayed Him and de-emphasized Him. They take His name upon their lips, even offering a type of worship to Him. But when you compare what He commanded them to be and do with the way they're actually living, what you can quickly discern is that their religion during this time period was homemade. It was a religion that they kind of came up with themselves. Based upon stuff they knew about God, but also based upon things that they just had a preference for. We look at God's commands, and we look at their lives, and we discover that they took some of what God said, added it to their own ideas, their own desires of what is good and right, and voila, they have a religion that suits their lifestyles. They have a religion that fits them quite well. Now, there are a lot of things that are a whole lot better homemade. Apple pie, right? Chicken soup, cornbread. I mean, there's some things you just want made at home. But religion isn't one of them. Homemade religion is disastrous. Homemade religion will destroy you. It will let you think you're going to heaven, while in reality... It will lead you to hell. I want to read our text this morning. It's found in Judges 17. It's two chapters. I'm going to read them both because they tell one story, a story that is in three different settings, three different scenes. And so it's found beginning on page 216 in the copy of the Bibles that are provided for you. I'll begin in Judges chapter 17, verse 1. We'll read all the way down through the 31st verse of chapter 18. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, I encourage you to get one because you'll be lost without it. And uh, you may not uh, follow along with the things that I want to say this morning. So hear God's word as I read aloud from Judges chapter 17. 
There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoken in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were there by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me and I become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to the brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to him, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtael and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, the place is called Manahat-Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone out to scout the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone in to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went out to Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. 
When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me, What is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him. And they came to Laish, a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was, from Sidon, it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Homemade religion will destroy you while deceiving you. It will cause you to think that what you're doing is good when in reality what you're doing is bad. It will make you think you are okay with God when in reality you are under the judgment of God. It feels right, though in fact it is wrong. It looks blessed, but in reality it is cursed. It appears to lead you in the right way toward God when in fact it leads you step by step away from God. That's what we learn in these two chapters, Judges 17 and 18. In my study of this passage over the last week, I came across a couple of very interesting comments by different ones who have written on this particular portion of God's Word. One writer commenting on these two chapters makes the following claim. In all my life, I have never heard a single reference from pulpit or songwriter or study leader or anybody else at all, never one single tiny whispered sound that related to the Micah of the book of Judges. The reason is that the story is so crazy, so mixed up, that obviously the parsons and the clerks are too embarrassed by it to let out one single peep. <laughs> Another commentator envisions evangelical Christians coming to Judges 17 and 18 in their reading and furrowing their brow as their hearts whisper softly and tenderly that there's no need to wrestle with such Scripture when they could be meditating on Philippians. <laughs> well, after today, you cannot identify with the first comment. I hope you will not identify with the second one. The author of this passage shows us how deceptive and deceitful and deadly homemade religion is by giving us three separate scenes that together make one overarching point. In 17, 1 through 6, we are introduced into a Israelite household with a man named Micah. And then in verse 7 through 20 of chapter 17, the second scene opens with a young man from the tribe of Levi coming to live with Micah and becoming his personal priest. And then chapter 18 is dominated by these people from the tribe of Dan, the Danites, whose lives intersect with Micah and the Levite as they look for a place to settle. On the, on the surface, these three scenes might not seem to tell much of a story. But upon closer inspection, they demonstrate that homemade religion is deceptive and destructive. And that's true whether it's found in an individual household, whether it's found in a man of the cloth, or whether it's found in a larger community of people. There are five lessons I want to point out from these two chapters. The first is the most important of those lessons because it's foundational for all the rest. First, homemade religion arises out of neglect of God's Word. You'll never have homemade religion without neglecting God's Word, and whenever you neglect God's Word, you will have homemade religion. This isn't immediately apparent upon reading the text, but it is made evident in two ways. First, when you carefully consider the way, the manner in which the author tells this story, the way that he writes. 
on the surface, the perspective of the author isn't all that obvious. I mean, does he approve or disapprove of the things that he writes, the events he records? Or is he just an impartial observer? Is he just giving us the facts? What point is he trying to make? Why is this in the Bible? What is it that we are to glean from it? Well, there are two verbal cues that he gives to us that help us get something of his perspective. After introducing us to Micah and his mother and their plan to make carved images to worship, the author adds his own little commentary, almost as a throwaway remark in verse 6 of chapter 17. Did you see it? He says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He's just described what they were doing, and he just adds this little statement. No king, people just do whatever they think is right in their own eyes. His point is, there wasn't a godly king to enforce God's commandments. There wasn't any ruler who recognized the authority of God's word and called upon the people to submit their lives and live according to that authoritative word. What Micah and his mom were doing wasn't based upon God's word completely. In other words, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. We see the, the second verbal clue being the same thing in chapter 18, verse 1, when the Danites are introduced to us. This time it's only partially stated. In those days there was no king, but it's the same point. And he goes on to tell us then what the people of this tribe do, which is also contrary to the commanded revelation of God. What God's clear will is that he had given to them, as we will see in just a moment. So the author wants us to know that the actions he's describing are the result of people neglecting God's word, doing what seems right in their own eyes. But we also get his perspective by the, the subtle irony, some would call it even sarcasm, with which he writes. If you read it with sensitivity to that point, you'll see it. I mean, look at Micah's mother. She pronounces the Lord's blessing on her son, Yahweh's blessing on her son. And then she commissions him to make images, idols, to worship Yahweh. Specifically against what Yahweh commands. Or in Micah's name, this isn't so evident, but the name Micah literally means who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? It, it's a, an expression of awe. It's a rhetorical question. Nobody's like this God, our God. And yet Micah, whose very name speaks of the transcendence of God, says now I'm going to make some idols to represent him. There's a subtle sarcasm here. There is a weaving of irony through what the writer puts before us here. We see it in the Levite as well. The Levite came from a priestly tribe. These were men set aside from God to represent the tribe of or the nation of Israel to God and to represent God to the nation of Israel. And yet what does he do? He sets himself up as Micah's own personal priest with a nice salary to boot in verses 10 through 12. And then, later on, when the Danites come to town, he sells himself to them because they're a higher bidder. They offer him more in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 18. In chapter, 20, or in chapter 18, verse 24, we see Micah's complaint in the same light where this subtle irony is set forth. After the Danites take his idol and his priest, he chases after them. And did you hear what he said? You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what do I have left? Now, let me just give you a little hint here. If your God can be stolen, he's probably not worth worshiping. That's Micah's dilemma. That's the point of the author. You know, it reminds me of a scene about 15 years ago, 16 years ago, when a very prominent, well-known television evangelist who had built a multi-million dollar, more than a hundred million dollar empire was discovered to be guilty of sexual crimes and financial crimes. And a federal grand jury indicted him on 24 separate counts. And so his empire begins to crumble and his assets were frozen in the midst of all this. 
And so he goes back on television one last time, and in the course of lamenting what's happened to him, he's crying, tears are coming down his face, and he talks about the houses that have been taken away from him, the cars that he's lost, all of his bank accounts frozen, everything that he's had has been taken away from him. And then in one final statement, to, to gin up real sympathy, to emphasize just how bad his life has become with tears streaming down his face, he looks into the camera, he says, all I have left is Jesus. You know, if you want sympathy because all you have left is Jesus, then you don't really know Jesus. And when Micah is looking for sympathy because his gods have been taken, what the author wants us to understand is he doesn't really know God. Despite all of his religious trappings, despite all the rituals, all of the things that he was engaged in that on the surface might look like he had a relationship with God, his religion was homemade. So the very way that the author tells the story of these chapters helps us, helps us to see that the kind of homemade religion that the Israelites had arises out of a neglect of God's word. But that becomes even more evident when you take what is written here and read it carefully and then compare it to what God had previously revealed to be his will. Now, I've already touched on this a little bit, but let me just highlight a few more examples. Moses, when he delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and took them into the wilderness, received God's commandments for them and repeatedly spoke those commandments to them, inscribed the Ten Commandments on stone, and repeatedly warned them to carefully observe all that God had said. When Joshua, his successor, led the Israelites into the land of promise, he also underscored the importance of carefully adhering to all that God had said. Listen to what Joshua said in Joshua 1.7, talking to the Israelites in the land of promise, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Yet Micah and his mother, as an expression of their devotion to Yahweh, are engaged in making idols of Yahweh. Clearly violating the second of the Ten Commandments. Where God thundered from Mount Sinai and had inscribed by His own finger on tablets of stone, you shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above and earth below or the waters underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of all those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me. God had spoken that commandment with his own voice and here are these people. Oh yeah, yeah. For, for, hey, let's do something for God. Let's build an idol. You see, they contradict exactly what God had said. We see it in the Levite. The Levites were set aside to serve as priests under very strict regulations, which God revealed, spells out in Numbers chapter 18. Yet the Levite in the story, what does he do? He sells himself as a personal priest to Micah, and then he uses idols to help worship God. We see it in the Danites in the 18th chapter. The Danites along with all the other 11 tribes of Israel, had been given an allotment of the promised land. Theirs was on the western border. So when Joshua led them in, the tribes were to go to the places that the land had been allotted to them, and they were to occupy it. They were to drive out the inhabitants. That was to be their place. But if you look at verse 34 of chapter 1 of Judges, you'll see that the Danites were driven back. They didn't take the land that had been allotted to them. So here they are, they are searching for a place to settle. They act like they want God's blessing. But then, having received some kind of word from this priest, they steal from Micah on the way to doing what they're convinced and will say God has led them to do. I mean, the Eighth Commandment says, right? You shall not steal. Do you see this? You see, when you compare the actions of these people who are very religious to what God had specifically said, 
you cannot help but conclude that the religion they have is not religion that's revealed from God. It's religion that they've made up themselves. They've just kind of figured out a way to do what feels right for them to do. They go on, the Danites, and set up a shrine as a place of worship in the city of Laish that they conquer. And yet, at this time in Israel's history, God had specifically told them they were to worship Him through the tabernacle. And that tabernacle was set up in the city of Shiloh in Ephraim, as the last verse says. Chapter 18, Joshua also says this in Joshua 1, 18. The point is that the author is trying to get us to see that the religion that was common in Israel during the time of the judges was a homemade religion because it was not based upon the commandments of God, but it was based upon what seemed right in every person's eyes. Though they talked about God, they employed some of the language that He had revealed, they engaged in some of the ritual activities that He had prescribed, they did not honor the Word of God. They did what was right in their own eyes. Now, brothers and sisters, I just need to be real plain and honest with you right now. I think that this is the malady of much of Christianity today. We know how to talk about God. We understand some of the things that God has said in His Word. We even honor those things. But in reality, what so often goes on in the name of Christianity, is nothing more than homemade religion. We take what we like, we take what's comfortable, the things we don't like, the things that put us off a little bit, we ignore and we think, this is what it means to be a Christian. It is a great tragedy when people do not live according to what God has said, but only do really what's right in their own eyes while thinking they're right with God. That only happens when God's Word is not taken seriously. When it's either intentionally ignored, or what is more prevalent, when it is assumed. We assume that we know what God says. We see this all the time. People try to relate to God on their own terms when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And if you think you're okay with God because of things that you figured out and you are not bowing to Jesus as Lord, then your religion is homemade. Or people will think today that if they try hard enough to be good, that God will surely approve of them. I and mean, after all, He understands, right? He knows how hard it's been. He knows I did my best. And yet, God says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of your righteousnesses are like a soiled rag in His sight. The best thing you've ever done, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you hold up to God and He says, it's like a dirty rag. And yet people still think, no, you know, I, I like God. I'm for God. I, I think God's going to accept me because I'm trying my best. Jesus says, unless a man's born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It won't happen. So God's got to do something. God's got to change you. God's got to give you righteousness. God's got to give you new life. Or people today profess to love Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. But then they disobey His commands. And what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commands so you see how this works homemade religion is not just a malady that affected ancient israelites friend homemade religion permeates our american culture today homemade religion exists within our churches today if we're not careful no matter how long you have been familiar with the things of god you can go on in your life thinking you're right with Him, when in reality, you're being led away from Him because what you have doesn't come from God's Word. It comes from what you have figured out in your own mind to be okay. This passage warns us of this. What does God's Word mean to you? Not theoretically, but practically. Are you willing to be guided by it? 
Are you willing to be judged by what the Bible says? Are you willing to be corrected by God's Word? Or do you just disregard it when it's not convenient? Friend, God's brought you here today to hear this portion of His Word taught in order to provide an opportunity for you to sit back and examine yourself in the light of what He says. What is it that you believe? How is it that you live? And why is it so? Is it because you have a wholehearted devotion to God that says, Lord, speak, I hear, your will is my way? Or have you just figured out a way to live and be religious? Homemade religion arises wherever God's word is neglected. But notice, secondly, that homemade religion can have several commendable qualities. I mean, we, in this story, what do you see? You see confession of sin, you see forgiveness, you see restoration of um, things stolen. I mean, there's a lot of good things in this story. Micah, he, he sort of repents in verse 2. I mean, when he heard his mom call down a curse upon whoever stole the silver, and he realized that's me, he goes to her, and so he says, Mom, I took it, and I'm going to give it back to you. And then he acknowledges that Blessing comes from the Lord even while he, in the process of acknowledging it, reveals that he really knows very little of the Lord. In verse 13 of chapter 17, listen to what he says after he gets his own personal priest. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite for my priest. Now he's, he's missing it completely, but he at least acknowledges that God is the one from whom blessings flow. Micah's mother, I mean, she sort of forgives her son, right? She honors the Lord verbally in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 17. She even invokes a blessing from Yahweh, the covenant God. That's his covenant name, Yahweh. She invokes a blessing using his name upon her son in verse 2. Then in verse 3, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. Now, granted, it was for making idols, but there's something commendable about that. You know, I'm going to take what was restored to me. Here's restitution, and I'm going to reward the person. I'm going to bless the person who stole from me. There's, there's something commendable about that. Or the priest, the Levite. I mean, this is a guy who had a very impressive pedigree. He was a Levite. He wasn't like Micah's son that Micah first set up to be priest in his house. This was from the tribe of priests in Israel. But not only that, did you catch it at the end of chapter 18? Who this guy really is? The author very craftily very wisely in telling the story reveals who this person is in verse 30 of chapter 18 he's a descendant of Moses and the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan the son that is the descendant of Gershom the son or descendant of Moses and his sons were priests this guy has a lineage that goes all the way back to Moses well there's something impressive about that then in chapter 18, verse 5, the Danites come across fairly impressive as well, right? They appear to seek the Lord's guidance. They ask the Levite, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. I mean, there's a lot in this story that is commendable. There's a lot in this story that if you just read it on the surface level, you say, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of religious devotion here. It's confession of sin, paying back what you've stolen, granting forgiveness, blessing the person who stole from you, giving part of your wealth to the Lord, coming from a godly family, seeking guidance and blessing from God on your efforts. I mean, what's wrong with these things? Nothing's wrong with those things in and of themselves. What's wrong is that the, these ingredients are mixed with other ingredients that God specifically forbids in His Word. What we see going on here are these actors in this play approaching God and his word like you approach a cafeteria line you get what you want you leave what you don't and the author here wants us to see that to recognize that they are disregarding what was not right in their eyes and approving of what was right in their eyes demonstrating by that that it's not God who rules over them. It is they who rule over God. This reminds me of the church at Thyatira that's spoken of by Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Jesus commends that church for many good things. He says, you have love. You're people of faith. Uh, you have great patience. You have a servant-heartedness. All these things are great. 
But he says, I have this against you. You let a wicked woman by the name of Jezebel be prominent and teach immorality in the church. They did, they did some things that Jesus told them they should do. They were some things that Jesus told them to be. But then they neglected what Jesus clearly teaches here about the nature and purity of the church. And Jesus says, I am going to come and make your church close down if you don't repent. The God who has wholeheartedly pledged himself to save all who come to him through faith in Jesus Christ calls us to be wholeheartedly devoted to him in every area of our lives. If you're content to live with half-hearted devotion that ignores the parts of God's word that you don't like while resting on commendable qualities in your own life, then your religion is no different than this ancient religion of the Israelites. It's homemade. It will take you to hell. And today is the opportunity for you to acknowledge that and turn from that and come to Jesus Christ as Lord and submit to Him and what He says. Well, along with commendable qualities, homemade religion, we see thirdly, can also have very impressive activities. This overlaps a little bit, but just think there's a lot of religious fervor. There's worship, there's rituals, there's a lot of talk about God, there's shrines, there's holy men, there's offerings. I mean, all of these actors display a level of religious fervor. The mother, Micah, his son, the Levite, the Danites, they all engage in outwardly impressive activities. I mean, there's a military victory here in the name of God. Danites ask, are, are we going to be successful? The Levite says, go in peace. Man, it's going to go well for you. So they go out in the name of God and they conquer. On the surface, all of this looks very impressive. I mean, the story could be told in such a way that all of these people would have a reputation for not only being godly people, but being zealous for the Lord. They invoke the Lord's name. They presume to worship the Lord. They march under His guidance. They fight under His provision of victory. Outwardly, it looks very impressive. Just like the religion of the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. Very impressive. But read Matthew 23, chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel. What does Jesus do? He upbraids those religious leaders of his day for their hypocrisy. But he does it by calling attention to many good things that they've done. He says, you travel across land and sea and you make a single proselyte in that effort. I mean, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty zealous, right? Across land and sea to make one convert. He would say, man, that guy's dedicated. Problem is, Jesus says, when you convert a guy... You convert him to the same unbelief and godless position that you yourselves occupy. He says literally, you make him twice the child of hell that you yourself are. He says, you tithe your mint, your cumin, your deal. I mean, th th these are like little herbs. So they take a tenth of everything that they get and they tithe it. They give it to the Lord. Very precise, very meticulous, looks very commendable. But he says you do that while you ignore justice, faithfulness, mercy. Impressive in some ways, but at the heart, it's rotten. You can be engaged in activities that look good, yet have a religion that is nothing more than homemade. A fourth lesson we see from this is that homemade religion can also bring you apparent blessings. I mean, again... Imagine how each of the actors in this story might tell their parts of what happened. Okay, just put that thought in your mind. Let me, let me help you imagine how each one might tell other people about what happened to them. Micah's mother might put it like this. Why, I made an offering to the Lord because He blessed me by restoring my stolen silver to me. I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude, I just gave a portion of it back. Micah could say... I confess my sin of stealing, and a portion of that which I stole was given to me anyway, along with a blessing from the Lord. And not only that, the Lord gave me my own personal priest, a Levite no less. And I made him his own ephod to wear, several carved images, and a shrine in my own house. And my house became the most religious house in the whole community. Or the Levite. He might say, why God gave a great opportunity to me to fulfill my calling in Micah's house and with a nice salary to boot. And then a whole tribe of people from Israel came and asked me to be their priest. In fact, they almost forced me to go with them. 
And the Lord's given me a much bigger platform. Now I've got a much bigger congregation. Or the Danites. God gave us His blessing to attack the people of Laish and gave us the victory. Plus, He provided a Levite to be our own priest. And He enabled us to set up this shrine in this city that we've conquered. Our own shrine for worship. And guess who our priest is related to? Moses. I mean, they could tell this story in such a way that people would say, man, you guys have been blessed. In fact, if they were writing it today on social media, they'd tell their story. they put hashtag so blessed. Because <laughs> it looks blessed, doesn't it? Good things seem to be coming their way through their religion. But in reality... They are no different than that church in Laodicea that Jesus speaks to in Asia Minor in Revelation 3. He warns that church by saying, you say, this is their own evaluation of themselves, I'm rich, I've prospered, I have need of nothing, but you don't realize, Jesus said, this is my evaluation. You're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Despite their apparent blessings, because they had turned away from obeying his commandments, Jesus said to that church, I'm ready to vomit you out of my mouth. Homemade religion can have commendable qualities, impressive activities, apparent blessings. But because homemade religion neglects the word of God, fifthly, it will make you miss God. It's foolish. It's utterly foolish. I mean, when Micah goes to whine to the Danites, we see the foolishness of homemade religion highlighted. When they won't give him back his gods and they threaten to do him harm if he doesn't back off, verse 24 and 26 of chapter 18 says this, when Micah saw they were too strong for him, he turned back and went back to his home. What kind of religion is that? I got to have this. You've taken this from me. Well, cost too high. Okay, it's foolish. We see the foolishness in both the mothers dedicating money to the Lord to build him idols that he strictly forbids and in the Danites' pretensions that they have the blessing of the Lord while they are stealing from Micah in the process of pursuing that blessing. Homemade religion is condemned by God. When compared to what God has already revealed to them through Moses and Joshua, it's not hard to realize that the religion of the Israelites was that which they concocted for themselves and was actually under the judgment and condemnation of God. God is the one who determines what is right and good and acceptable. And nothing other than that, no matter how good it feels, how right it feels, can measure up to what he requires. In Psalm number 50, the Lord speaks a word of rebuke and warning to his own people who took his name upon their lips while throwing his law behind their back. He says this in Psalm 50, 21. These things you've done, all these disobedient acts, and I've been silent. You thought I was like one of yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Homemade religion is under the judgment of God. But most importantly, homemade religion is spiritually deadly. It makes you feel like you're on good terms with God, while in reality, you're far from Him. Your homemade religion will always keep you from being accepted by God. It deceives you while destroying you. It destroys you while making you feel pretty good about how you're doing. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus warns against in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. The most haunting sobering words that Jesus ever spoke. He's coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And as he's drawing things to a close, listen to what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Not everybody who has a religion. Not everybody who takes the name of God upon their lips in religion but the one who does the will of the Father. On that day, Jesus says, talking about the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works, miracles in your name? Jesus is telling us what's going to happen on the day of judgment, friend. 
Brothers, sisters, this is what's going to happen on the day of judgment. This is part of the scene. Jesus is going to say, not everybody here is entering into the kingdom. And people are going to start making up their arguments. We preached in your name. We did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says, on that day, I will turn and say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Religious, but missing God. Confident that they were going to be accepted by God, but when the day of judgment came, they find themselves being cast out by Jesus Christ Himself because they, though maybe having called Him Lord, did not bow to Him as Lord. They weren't depending upon Him as Lord. How in the world will you avoid being destroyed by homemade religion? Is there an antidote? There is. There is. The antidote is spelled out in the words that Jesus says right after those sober, severe words of warning in the Sermon on the Mount. The very end of Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Listen to what Jesus says. You want to be delivered from homemade religion? He says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. Hear and do. Submit to God's Word as true, life-giving, and that which governs you. But then he contrasts it in verse 26 with one final warning. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, rather just mixes them with some of their own ideas of what they think is appropriate, like the Israelites during the time of Judges, comes up with their own homemade religion. That person will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, it fell and great was the fall of it. To avoid that devastating, surprising word of judgment from the Lord Jesus on that great and final day. Listen to what he says. Believe him. Bow to him as Lord. If you only hear God's word, maybe tip your hat to God's word. But do not submit yourself to receive that word and have it govern your life so that you're willing to repent where you're out of step. You're willing to trust what it says is true. You're willing to go where it directs you to walk. And you're setting yourself up for a great fall. Homemade religion might look good, feel good, but it's a disaster in disguise. It will deceive you while it destroys you. We can make sure, brothers and sisters, and the words given to us for this purpose guard against such homemade religion examine what you believe examine how you live by the word of god god's made provision for us how we are to live he has spoken to us he has provided a way to know him to trust him to be right with him to hear from him to be empowered by him and that antidote that he's given to us is found in his revealed word We see a very significant hint of this back in our text in the very last verse. The last verse of chapter 18 of Judges. The author just says this kind of as a postscript. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. God had made provision for his people. Through the tabernacle. He commanded Moses to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. And it would be this tent of meeting that would represent his presence. That's where he would manifest his glory. That's where he would answer questions. That's where he would give direction. That's where he would receive sacrifices for sin. And that tabernacle, that house of God, was now at this period of history in Shiloh. God had not allowed them to worship Him in any old way they wanted to. They were to worship Him in the way He prescribed. And His prescription was at Shiloh, in Ephraim. And here they are now in this newly conquered city of Laish. And they said, we're just going to build our own shrine. And the author says, yeah, and that shrine continued on as long as the tabernacle was at Shiloh. Homemade religion in Laish. Revealed salvation in Shiloh. 
Where has God made provision for people today? It's not in a tent. It's not in a place. God has provided His final tabernacle in Jesus Christ, His Son. In fact, the Apostle John refers to Jesus as the tabernacle. In John chapter 1, after he reveals Jesus as the Word of God who became flesh in verse 14, he says, this Word became flesh, we beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. It was glory as the only begotten gun. It has come and dwelt among us. It tabernacled among us. That's the word literally. Tabernacled among us. You want to be right with God? You've got to come to Jesus Christ. You want to know God, be accepted by God? You've got to depend upon Jesus. That's the place that He's provided His salvation. You want your sins forgiven? There's only one place. It is in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's done what is necessary that God requires of you that you cannot supply to Him. And if you try to live your life without bowing to Jesus Christ as Lord, dear friend, you'll wake up on the day of judgment discovering that the religion that you had was homemade. Turn from that today. Come to Jesus today. Believe Jesus. God sent Him to save sinners. To make us right with Him. To give us life. To guide us, strengthen us, and provide for us every day of our lives and throughout all of eternity. In Christ, we can come to know God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for not withholding from us that which we need. We thank You for not leaving us to ourselves in all of our efforts to get right with You. We, we confess that we do that and we have done it. We want to be delivered from it, Lord. Don't let anybody walk out of the room today with their own concoction, their own homemade religion. But oh God, grant faith to each one of us to believe Jesus Christ, to hope in Him, to find life and forgiveness in Him. For we pray in His name. Amen.